Uh, Father, we come before you in gratitude that we can worship you so freely and together as a church family. And as we come to your word now, which, which is a pretty uh, heavy and, and confrontational passage, uh, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would convict our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, that you would make uh, your word uh, like honey upon our lips. Help us to see the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, the depths of our iniquity, the goodness of the gospel, the greatness of your love for us. Uh, please do something powerful in each of our lives through your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are a bit past the midway point of the book of Luke, and, and it is that since Luke chapter 9, 21 and 22, where Jesus has been very explicit about his own awareness of his upcoming rejection, sufferings, death, resurrection, and in verse 51 of the same chapter, it says there that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, which is a city where all of these things would be taking place. There is this determination within his heart to accomplish the atonement upon the cross for our sins. There is this drive to complete what only Jesus can complete. And with the cross before him, it is as if he is straining his neck towards it as the finish line. And I think it is that since that very turning point, we have some of the most potent teachings from Jesus about discipleship and what it means to follow him and making sure our religion is real to understand the times, to be ready for his return, to fear things like hypocrisy more than we fear the, the enemies of the world, to understand the importance of repentance, etc., etc. It is as if the closer that Jesus gets to that cross, there is this clarifying effect on what it is that actually matters. And, and it really is the same with many of us. When by the grace of God, through an epiphany or through some difficult set of circumstances, we are given the wisdom to number our days, there can be this clarifying effect on what it is that actually matters. And so there is this urgency that with the cross before Jesus and the reality of heaven and hell upon him, that what is essential is being amplified. I mean, Jesus, just in chapter 12, is saying things like, you want to be rich and build barn houses and retire and eat and drink and be merry? You might die today. Don't be foolish. Or, or you're less than rich. Don't worry. Sell your stuff. Give it away. There will be treasure in the heavens that you can never lose. I mean, you can't say stuff like that. You can't believe stuff like that unless you have truly measured this finite life against that of eternity. And our text this morning has, within its tone and, and its content, very much the same kind of feel. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God, but it is possibly more than that that he is urging people to actually enter into it. And so Jerusalem is right ahead. People are still following, but perhaps they might not actually be getting it. And the seriousness is such that Jesus is maximizing the rest of his short time to preach. And so he's traveling on the way to Jerusalem and on the way he's hitting not just major cities, but he's going into little villages and towns as well, like we see in our text today, to preach to as many people as possible salvation before he hangs upon that cross to accomplish it. We read in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Uh, in one of the more sobering set of verses we have encountered in Luke, Jesus says here that the door of salvation is narrow. 
and that fewer people than you think are going to be saved, that the amount of those who will enter into the kingdom of God is less than not more, and therefore we must strive to enter into it. Now, now we don't know why this person poses this question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? We don't even know who it is that asks it, whether it was an honest question in light of Jesus' preaching on the cost of discipleship, uh, whether it was a trap, an opponent wanting to catch Jesus in his words. I mean, you do hang out with a lot of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus. Are they part of the few? Whatever the reason, uh, whichever the person and identity and motive, it is all utterly irrelevant. For Jesus turns a question into a command to any and to all who would listen. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't first speculate on who is or who isn't going to be saved. Make sure that you yourself are. Don't look around the room and postulate upon the souls of others. Jesus is saying, look in the mirror and consider your own soul. And the word strive here is quite visual. Agonizomai is the root word, and you can hear within that word the word agonize. It is a verb that is usually used to describe the effort involved in a fight or a struggle or what an athlete would endure in a contest, which is to say that the only way we can enter into that narrow door of salvation is with intentional, agonizing, vigilant, effort-filled fight. It takes a lot of work. And rightfully, many of us at this point will be uncomfortable with that word work, especially when it comes to matters pertaining to our salvation. Because the gospel is such that Jesus does it all. He accomplishes all the work. He lives a life that we didn't live. He dies a death that we each deserve. He endures the wrath of God against our sin upon himself on the cross, the sinless one, so that we might be covered by him. His blood is what purifies us and washes and cleanses us. His resurrection from the grave is what frees us from the power of sin and the fear of death. And it is his ascension and his mediating ministry on our behalf even now, which aids us so in the process of sanctification. And he will return for his church and the culmination of it all, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. All of that to say that salvation is of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. It is his work and not our work. We cannot earn a thing, and therefore he receives all of the glory. And yet it is that Jesus is saying here, strive, work to enter through the narrow door. What does that mean? We can often, because salvation is of grace and not of works, we can often think of Christianity and saving belief as this kind of passive, uh, intellectual, I nod my head and show up to church every now and then kind of thing. I can recite the gospel verbatim, which must therefore mean that I have saving faith, which is not how the Bible describes true faith at all. There is not a passive bone in the body of true saving faith that thinks belief is something of ease and of leisure. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. It's one description of faith in the New Testament. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That assurance and that conviction does not come passively. And it does not grow within us while we are lying down. We can look to Jesus, the true and better Adam, 
perfect humanity. We can look to him as the author and the perfecter of our faith when he had been assaulted in the desert wilderness and starving for 40 days, and the devil tempts him. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread in Luke 4. You think Jesus could resist that passively? When he answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You think Jesus did not have to suppress his physical appetite for the sake of his spiritual one? To trust a father that as painful as these hunger pains are, food is not going to be what defines my life. It's not even what I need most within this moment. It takes striving. When Jesus is tempted to gain all the kingdoms of the world without a cross, again, while he's hungry, alone, and in the wilderness, and Jesus' eyes are shown in a moment all the glories of all the wealth and power and comforts and luxuries of the world. You think that it was a cakewalk to not desire all of it. You think at that point while he is in pain that those words he does utter, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Do you think those words were easy to believe in that moment? Well, Jesus, as much as he has set his face toward Jerusalem and is straining his neck towards that finish line with this determination, we will find that very determination tested when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, because he's dreading the cross. And we see his agony very visually. As Jesus asked of the Father there, he pleads with them, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He didn't want it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then his sweat becomes like drops of blood through his skin. The agony is so intense there. You know, many of you I know have had to pray similar things because for whatever reason, God's will is not aligning with yours. And yet that belief in your heart is still such. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know that that is not a cakewalk. And it is here that we understand that there is this agony and striving that has been part of our exemplary Savior as he lives this perfect, sinless life. We do not, and yet he models for us this faith, the active faith that we are to strive to possess, that there is an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not yet seen. You know, the Christian life is is such that we believe in something that is utterly otherworldly. That there is a reality beyond this reality that we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands. That what we see is not all that there is. And it makes us pretty strange to the ones who do not know Jesus at all. It actually makes us aliens and foreigners in this passing world. I mean, let me just read to you a few of the Beatitudes from Luke 6.20 just to prove how strange it really is. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I mean, you think you can believe those words passively and without any kind of effort? And you can teach your kids to respond like this when this happens to them on the account of Jesus Christ? You think you can trust that? 
without the agonizing wrestling of your heart and your mind and your body and soul. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. You want to be popular? I mean, to really take Jesus at his word and to really look upon his own life as glorious, even though he's crucified in his 30s without a penny to his name, and then wanting to heed his call to take up our own cross as well as he beckons us to come and follow him, to desire this kind of kingdom, which welcomes in the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated. I mean, that takes every bit of striving in our end, every bit of agonizing to really believe. And that is not a work which earns salvation. It just proves that we actually trust him who gives us salvation by his grace and his grace alone. That door to that kingdom, that gate to salvation, it really begins to get more and more narrow when we begin to let Jesus' words truly sink into our minds and our hearts. And it's the same when that very gospel is put before us and that cross of Christ is lifted in our sight that that door gets even more tight because there is no room for self-righteousness. Our accolades don't fit into it. No self-glory, no contribution, nothing in my hand I bring, we sing. Only to the cross I cling. And when we see there that we are loved, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are, and when we realize that all of our achievements are but dust and our righteousness like filthy rags that we cannot carry with us through that gate, a love for the world, a love for self-glory, that, that door feels tighter still, when we must in one sense lay aside all pride and self-confidence and crawl in on our hands and knees to own our sin and not blame others for it, to repent of it, to enter life the same way a man like Paul did who used to get Christians murdered, how he has to get low and enter life. We're in the same boat as him, that we're each called to change and to die to self and to find life and freedom, not in what we do, but in what Christ has done. That door gets narrower still. And for the people Jesus is preaching to throughout Israel, it's not only that the door is narrow in this way, but also in terms of time as well, for the Son of God is right before their faces, and they seem not to be taking him nor his words very seriously at all. Their theology is more speculative. Are the people saved going to be few? It's more speculative than it is practical. Am I going to be saved at all? When the gate of salvation is narrow, am I going to believe in Jesus? His work, his person, his atonement, his word, when it requires that I trust in him more than I do in myself and look to a reality that cannot be felt or seen with these hands and eyes, but is more than concrete. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. I mean, we must strive, brothers and sisters. Paul calls the Christian life a fight to be fought, a race to be finished, of faith to be kept in 2 Timothy 4, 7. You can't fight and run and keep and hold that faith secure without much painstaking and agonizing effort. And so why do we strive to enter the narrow door? Jesus says here, for many will seek to enter and not be able. We strive because Jesus is clear that the many who will not strive will ultimately be turned away. Listen to Alexander McLaren on these verses very solemnly significant is the difference between striving and seeking. It's like the difference between wishing and willing. There may be a seeking which has no real earnestness in it and is not sufficiently determined to do what is needful in order to find. 
Plenty of people would like to possess earthly good but cannot brace themselves to needful work and sacrifice. Plenty would like to go to heaven, as they understand the phrase, but cannot screw themselves to the surrender of the self and the world. Vagrant, half-hearted seeking, such as one sees many examples of, will never win anything, either in this world or in the other. We must strive and not only seek. In a church family, we have to strive to enter because few are actually going to enter. We have to fight that fight. We have to run that race. We have to keep that faith with great effort so that you might prove that you actually have saving faith, which is given to you by grace and grace alone. And so these are very sobering verses. Uh, But we continue in verse 25 as Jesus continues to give us a tragic picture of what the future will look like. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I did not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. Here we're given a a visual of what future tragedy is going to look like. uh, That many who will be turned away by Jesus are actually the ones who are confident that they are his. I think it's tragic that not many will be saved. I think it's ultra tragic that many will not be saved who think that they are. And here the visual is the master of the house who's locking up for the night. And some of his people have come on time appropriately and are with him within his home. And others try to enter it when it's already too late. The door has already been closed by the master's very own hand. The opportunity to come in had been there. The invitation had already been personally given. That door had been wide open, just not entered into And when it is shut, it is shut indeed. And what makes this visual all the more tragic is that the very ones who are locked out are the very ones who think that they should be inside. There is this eerie confidence that they belong to the master. They never felt in their hearts that they would be excluded. I mean, we ate and drank in your presence, Jesus. You taught in our streets. And the master doesn't deny any of it. He did, and they were right there. But his answer, both calm and severe, shows that there was no true and vital relationship with him. I do not know where you come from. And that they instead are categorized as workers of evil who need to depart. And at this point, I can feel the contemporary objections. I think this is too fire and brimstone Jesus. I mean, come on, Jesus, can't you be a little bit more seeker-sensitive? Can't you meet people where they're at a little bit more than you do? Why so serious? Because it is serious. I mean, there is a very severe danger in familiarity with Jesus. I think about the crowds in the first century. They had seen lepers cleanse. I've never seen that. They They witnessed paralytics now walking around. Some of them went to a funeral, and at the funeral, the dead person came back to life before their very eyes. I've never seen that. Think of the thousands that would press in upon Jesus to hear the words that would come out of his mouth, so much so that one time he actually has to get into a boat and preach from the shore because the crowds are so eager for it. Think of the thousands who ate that miraculous bread and fish and tasted it with their own tongue. 
Some people were at the same table with the Son of God incarnate. There's something about being around Jesus that makes you feel like you actually know Jesus. There's something about hearing things and seeing things and witnessing people's lives get changed that make you feel like you're in as well, even when you are just around. These people have heard the Son of God preach mere feet from their faces. They saw signs and wonders, had jaw-dropping astonishment, staring at each other. Can you believe this? Cried a few tears, sang a few songs. Wow, my life has really changed. But they only had this outward relationship to him and no real inward change. No conversion, no new birth, no repentance, no transformation of living for his glory above my glory. No cross carried, no self-denied, no confidence of things unseen, no conviction of things hoped for, which makes things even worse and the iniquity even deeper, so much so that what characterized this kind of life of familiarity and no real relationship with Jesus is the title, bold and underlined, workers of evil, depart from me, because there's something about being close and yet being so far away that is more evil than the normal kind. And we have here Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, representing those Old Testament saints that had this striving, genuine, saving faith, and not just familiarity alone. I mean, Abraham, he trusted God. He left family, home, everything he knew. His name was father of many, father of nations, and he didn't have the son of promise until he was 100. He didn't think he had to strive to believe? I believe didn't earn. He often struggled with unbelief, lied when he was scared, was imperfect like me and you, but his faith was real. Isaac almost gets killed by Abraham. Abraham believed so much that if Isaac were to die, God would raise him from the dead, Hebrews eleven nineteen. Isaac trusted his dad and trusted his God as well. Jacob, what a life. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. Then he gets lied to and deceived as well. He was tricked on his wedding night and woke up next to the wrong woman. Worked for years under a person who lied and changed his wages all the time. You think your boss is bad? And isn't he famously known for how he wrestled with God, how he strove with him, agonized. The prophets, they would preach the truth even when no one cared to hear the truth. It often cost them their lives. What is perhaps the most stinging thing about Jesus' words here is the utter shock. I mean, we're born Israelites. We're bred on the Torah. We're circumcised. We're told all the stories of all the eras of old. We go to feast every year, sacrifices on the regular, pilgrimages. We are the people of Yahweh. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are our forefathers. What is perhaps most stinging is that the people of Israel think that they are God's people because they are from the same bloodline as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they assume we will all be together in the kingdom of God because of that bloodline. But all they have is bloodline. They don't share the same faith. You know, young people are here, perhaps because your parents want you to be here. That's not going to save you. You go to camp, you go to Awani, you hear so many things about Jesus Christ. That's not going to save you. Older ones who are here, you're in a small group, you come to church when you can, you serve when it's convenient to you, you talk about Jesus. That's not going to save you. Please do not be confident with familiarity, association, close proximity, because Jesus is clear. These things are not going to save you. You must truly believe. And it's a gift of God's love that Jesus Christ himself 
on the way to Jerusalem is hitting as many towns and villages as possible and pressing in on this very point that you must believe, that you must come to know him and not just know about him. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You must take hold of Jesus and use every opportunity to grab onto him as tightly as you can. And so we have in this tragic picture a great weeping, the gnashing of teeth. I don't know that I've ever gnashed my teeth. I've wept a lot, but the gnashing of teeth is next level. And I can't help but think that so much of the pain of eternal torment is that of regret and is that of missed opportunity, that recollection of all the times God beckoned me and I didn't go, that he showed me the door to life and I didn't enter making the gate wider and broader in my mind so that I just wouldn't have to think about it all that much. Much of the pain of eternal torment, I think, is, is realizing the truth too late. Repentance later. Faith later. Taking these things more seriously later. Salvation later. And then it's too late. J.C. Riley says about these verses, a desire of salvation shall come to many too late. They shall long after pardon and peace and the favor of God when they can no more be had. They will wish they might have one more Sunday over again, have one more offer of forgiveness, have one more call to prayer, but it will matter nothing what they think or feel or desire then. The day of grace will be over. The gate of salvation will be bolted and barred. It will be too late. It was a witty saying of some wise man that hell is truth known too late. I fear that thousands of professing Christians in this day will find this out by sad experience. They will discover the value of their souls when it is too late to obtain mercy and see the beauty of the gospel when they can derive no benefit from it. Oh, that men would be wise early. And there's a weight to Jesus' words here. I think that sometimes people do get offended when their salvation is being questioned. How dare anyone question my salvation? Please don't be offended. I mean, Jesus is, is questioning us in this text so that we'll be sure. Better be sure to strive and to enter the kingdom that he is proclaiming. And so this is a very sobering visual of what future tragedy will be like of the ones who think they know Jesus but do not really know him. And please look with me in verse 29 where Jesus ends this section, which began with narrowness and closes with a view of the wideness of salvation. He says, and people will come from the east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You know, the gospel is very exclusive, and, and at the very same time, it's very inclusive. The gate is narrow that leads to life, but the people who do enjoy eternal life are, are literally from all corners of the world. Herschel York said something last week about traveling to places and meeting friends you didn't know you had. Because when you meet another believer in another country, another place, another race, another culture, you find that we're the same. We're his, and therefore we're one with each other, and the gospel has really reached to the ends of the earth. 
For the Jewish people in the first century, in their minds, descendants of the patriarchs, like us, were obviously in the kingdom. Gentiles who are foreigners and not this chosen race, they are excluded from the kingdom. We are the first, they are the last, and they assume salvation. But behold, Jesus says here, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. And this is exactly what Jesus is showing to us about the kingdom of God that there's this magnificent, uh, worldwide, redemptive glory about it that as far as sin has traveled across the world, across time, and across all nations and cultures and all of humanity is also as far as God's mighty arm has saved. And this is great news for those of you here who may feel like, man, I'm too far gone. And if God knew everything about me, Every skeleton in my closet, my past, my shame, I think he'd agree that I'm too far gone. And and I'm here to let you know that as far as the east is from the west is how far God can remove our transgressions from us. That as deep as a stain of wickedness, it all comes out whiter than the snow by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. But you must, you must put your trust in him. You must believe on him. And you shall be saved for even the last, the very last can be the very first, which gives hope to anyone and to everyone. The love of Jesus Christ is offered to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, and that word whoever means whoever, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so there is this beauty next to this tragedy, an international banquet, Philip Riken calls it, of salvation, fellowship, and blessing from the Old Testament and into the new that people would come to God from far away, Isaiah 45, 6, and 49, 12, which is true and side by side with the fact that there are those who are utterly close that are going to be shut out forever. Now, before I close, I want to say one thing about ministry, teaching, preaching, evangelism, and the like. There is an urgency here to Jesus' words that should be characteristically true of our own words as well. I mean, of course, be tactful. We're like in this post-Christian era and yada, yada. You got to be wise, discerning, aware. Don't force the issue or shove things down people's throats. But we mustn't ever tone Jesus down and try to be so low-key as to make people so comfortable because eternal life is an issue that you can procrastinate until tomorrow or some further day down the line. The idea that someone can sit in church week in and week out and never feel the seriousness and pressing urgency of the gospel is altogether unchrist-like and unfaithful to the Word of God. If we talk about heaven and hell as concepts more than they are realities, that's unchristlike. We must be upfront, winsome, urgent, and clear, not ambiguous. And sometimes I'll listen to Christian radio, and I'm like, is this about your boyfriend or about Jesus? Preaching that's so hazy. I mean, we must be clear and opened arm to everyone to proclaim the kingdom, yes, but to welcome them in because we believe that even the last can be first and urge them to enter even more. Would you play, please pray with me? Father, I ask that by your grace, um, 
by the work of your spirit, through the conviction of your word, uh, I ask that by your grace that none of us in this room will falsely believe that we are in the kingdom when we're not. I pray, God, that you would teach us the joy of striving, uh, the bliss of agonizing even, uh, uh, the, the, the burden of the cross to help it feel light. And I pray that we would really, really believe you and that we'd really, really see things that are otherworldly and have a confidence and a conviction of those very things. All to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.